0: All right, welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on 1 Timothy. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Now, just to be clear, 1 Timothy chapter 2 really is all one unit of thought, the whole thing, 2, 1 through 15. It really does all go together, but for the sake of time, we are going to break it into two recordings. But again, it's important to recognize the second half of the chapter, 9 through 15, the part that's about uh, women and all that, is really just the second half of the same discussion. And so it's important to listen to this whole thing as one whole unit of thought because it's all logically connected. So in this one, we'll look at the first half of that unit of thought in 2, 1 through 8. And then in our next recording... We will look at the second half of the unit of thought in chapter 2, 9 through 15. And so let's just set this whole chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, in its uh, immediate context. Where are we at in the flow of thought in the letter? In chapter 1, Paul gave this charge to Timothy to deal with false teaching and to present sound teaching, healthy teaching. That was the focus of chapter one. Uh, So Timothy is going to be responsible for sorting out truth from error. He's going to be responsible for dealing with false teachers. And we know from chapter 1, verse 3, that that's going to involve even confronting the false teachers themselves and telling them to cease and desist. We also know from 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he needs to focus on disseminating sound teaching and making sure he's saying, no, here's the truth. That's false. Here's the truth. And so Timothy has this two-sided responsibility in the charge that Paul is giving him to deal with false teaching and to make sure he's passing on sound teaching. Well, here in chapter 2, Paul now begins to give Timothy some very specific instructions about what he wants him to do, things that he wants Timothy to do as part of carrying out that charge, and those things involve setting things right in the church at Ephesus. And so here in chapter 2, Paul begins to address some of the specific things that he wants Timothy to teach, to the church at Ephesus and some of the specific things he wants to set in order at the church of Ephesus that presumably are maybe being disrupted or a little out of order. And so we get uh, some things that Paul wants Timothy to address in the church. And so let's begin in chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul says this, he says, first of all, then notice that he's He's continuing his thought. This is what I'm charging you to do, Timothy. This is what I want you to do. That was chapter one. Now, first of all, then here's something I need you to do as part of that charge. I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people for kings and for all who are in authority. And so the first thing Paul wants Timothy to do is to make sure that the church is praying for all people, and he uses various words for that, requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. And notice that the first three all revolve around asking God to do things, asking God for things, requests, prayers, and intercession. They're all about asking and appealing to God to to act on your behalf. And then he also throws in thanksgiving, that I want thanksgiving even to be made on behalf of all people. And he specifies for kings and for all who are in authority. And so even though there are... Kings, that is, emperors, people in charge, governors, and ruling persons who may not be um, friendly towards the church or towards Christians, Paul expects them not only to ask for God to act on their behalf and intervene in those situations, He also wants Timothy to make sure that the church is expressing their thanksgiving in an appropriate sort of way for those kinds of things. And so, pray for all who are in authority. Pray for all rulers. That's the idea. And what's the goal of that praying? Well, Paul states that in the second half of verse 2. The goal of that praying is this, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. The goal or the aim is so that the Christians at Ephesus and presumably Christians praying for people in authority wherever they live, even today, the goal is so that they may live a tranquil and quiet life. That is that there wouldn't be hostility and opposition, that there wouldn't be constant investigation and interrogation of Christians. If at all possible, pray With the end that we may live a tranquil and quiet life. And so he wants Christians to be able to live out their faith in a godly and dignified way and not be subject to all sorts of social disturbances, all sorts of social hostility and disquiet. That's important. And so that's really the aim or the objective Paul has in mind for this praying. And notice he uses the word godliness here. We'll see that over and over again in this letter. Paul uses that word a lot, and it has to do with a person's relationship with God and the manner of life, then, that flows out of their relationship with God. And so Paul wants them to be able to live out their faith and their relationship with God in a way um, that leads to a quiet life in town. That's the idea. This is actually something that's important to Paul. He, he told the Thessalonians way back at the beginning of his ministry, 15 years before he wrote this to Timothy, he wrote to the Thessalonians that he wants them to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we instructed you so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. In, in other words... Paul is saying the church doesn't need upheaval from within and then suspicion and hostility from without. And so we want you to be able to live in town in a quiet sort of way, without social disturbance, without upheaval, without disruption, and all that. What Paul says to slaves in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, is actually along the same lines as this when he says to slaves that they need to act a certain way so that. No one will be able to speak against the name of God and their teaching. And that's the idea. And so Paul is saying, I, I want Timothy, I want you to make sure that people are gathering together, the whole church is gathering together and praying for the authorities, praying for the rulers, thanking God for them so that we can live a quiet life. And that word quiet is going to be really important for us to notice here because it's actually uh, the same word that's used down later in the second half of the chapter where Paul gives instructions about women uh, towards the end of the chapter. And so its meaning here has to, in some regard, help us understand its meaning there. And that will be really important when we get to that second half of the chapter in the next recording. Paul then continues his thought about praying for leaders like this And here's what he says in verse 3. He says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior. So praying for people in charge and the rulers, even if they're pagans and even if they're not Christians, praying for them and giving appropriate thanksgiving for their role in keeping order in society, that's good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. And then Paul adds in verse 4, Who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? And this probably should be seen as clarifying one of the focuses of the praying. When we pray for rulers and authority and all those in charge, it would suggest that, by what Paul says here in verse 4, that we should pray for their salvation. God wants all people to be saved, even pagan kings, even unbelieving rulers. God wants everybody to be saved, including them, and so part of the focus of the praying ought to be praying for their salvation. Now, of course, not all of them will come to faith in Jesus. Not all of them will be saved. But God would like that. And it's certainly appropriate, therefore, for us to ask God to work in whatever way he can to try to bring that about. And so that clarifies uh, at least a key portion of what the praying is about, praying for their salvation. Then Paul amplifies this by describing what God did to make this salvation available to all. So verse 5 and following is sort of a reflection on this call to prayer and this desire that God has for everyone to be saved. Paul amplifies it uh, by saying, here's what God did to make that possible. And so look at verse 5. He says, "For explaining this. God wants everyone to be saved for there is one God, And one mediator also between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. And so as Paul's amplifying and explaining God's desire for everyone to be saved, he notes that there's one God and there's one mediator. And the presence of a mediator assumes what? Well, it assumes a broken relationship. That's what mediators do. They're there to repair a broken relationship or to negotiate uh, something in the relationship that needs to be brought back together. And in this case, notice that the mediator stands between God and human beings. Um, So the parties in the broken relationship are humans and God and the mediator stands between them to try to broker a deal between them to rectify uh, or remedy the broken relationship. And in this case, the mediator is is also a human being. It's the man, Jesus Christ. It's King Jesus, a human being, Paul says, that is the mediator in this relationship. And he is the broker who's going to sort out the details and try to rectify the problem and bring both parties back together. That's the role that Jesus plays as the mediator. Now, in, in the case of God and humans, Um, What did King Jesus or Jesus Christ do as the mediator to try to solve that relationship, to to fix this broken relationship? Well, look at verse 6. Here's what Jesus Christ did in his role as mediator. Who, verse 6, Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So in his role as mediator, here's what Jesus did. He gave himself uh, and he gave himself as a ransom And that word ransom refers to a payment on somebody else's behalf. It could also be translated as the redemption. And that's the basic idea. Like ransom and redemption, those concepts overlap. And the idea is paying something, paying a necessary fee or price in order to set someone free. It refers to liberation or deliverance typically by means of some sort of price. And in this case, the price was the mediator himself. He gave himself as the redemption price, as the ransom price to bring freedom and liberation. And notice that it says he gave himself as the ransom for all. That is, in view of what Paul is saying here, right? God desires all people to be saved, that when Jesus gave himself as a ransom, he had All people in view. Now, it's true, not all will receive it, but he had all people in view because God's ultimate desire is that uh, all mankind would be saved, even though not everybody will. And then the Uh, Thought ends in verse 6 with kind of a phrase that feels a little awkward. It just hangs there, and it says this. It says, the testimony given at the proper time. More literally, that is the witness or the testimony at its own time. And it's very loosely connected to what has just been said before that. It's a bit of an awkward phrase, but it seems to speak of the appropriateness, the aptness, if you will, of the timing of Jesus' redemption he gave himself at just the right time. And it was the right time for it to be witnessed to, to be testified about. And Paul is a witness testifying to it. And so he goes on and says in verse seven, for this, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith, And truth. And so Paul was appointed as a proclaimer, a herald, and an apostle, an official representative of this very message, of this very mediator and king who gave himself for the redemption of all mankind. And Paul emphasizes this by saying, I am telling the truth, I'm not lying. And even though that interrupts his thought, what he's getting at there is he's saying, look, my commission to be a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, especially to the Gentiles, that's not, I'm not making this up. I'm not a lie. And from a Jewish perspective, that's a shocking thing to be a teacher of the nations, a teacher of the Gentiles. And so Paul says, I'm telling the truth, not lying, really to affirm how surprising it is, but also how true it is. And so in keeping with God's desire for all to be saved, and in keeping with the fact that Jesus' redemption was offered for all, Paul is an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, trying to bring them into the faith, bring them into the truth on behalf of Jesus. So to summarize, the first thing that Paul urges Timothy to do is to make sure the church gathers together to pray and pray for all people, even those in in ruling positions. Pray with a focus on their salvation. Thank God for them as human beings and thank God for their personhood and pray that they might be saved with the aim that It'll lead to being able to live a quiet life there in Ephesus without uh, all sorts of social disturbance and all sorts of hostility and difficulty. Then in verse 8, based on all of that, Paul says this He says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and dispute. And so notice the word therefore begins this. So, based on all this, based on the fact that I want everybody in the church to pray, uh, that God wants all people to be saved, that uh, Jesus offered himself on behalf of all people. Based on all of that, I want, and he specifies, the men in every place to pray. What does he mean by every place? Well, it's not totally clear. Does he mean every house church? Does he mean that the church had separate little gatherings at various points in time? Is he just thinking of a variety of churches throughout the region, not just in Ephesus? Whatever it is, he wants the men in, in every place, every location, every church, every gathering to pray. And he wants them to do so lifting up holy hands and standing with hands raised to the sky, was a common posture among the Jews for prayer. And so that's the picture here. Lifting up your hands as if they're set apart, sanctified, holy unto God, uh, as you raise them up to God to pray. And notice, then he says he wants them to do that without anger and disputing. What does he mean by that? Well, we would have to assume that there's something in the situation there in Ephesus that probably motivates Paul to specify that. And we already saw in chapter 1 the charge to Timothy to deal with false teachers whose ideas were leading to disputes and arguments and fruitless discussion and all sorts of speculation. So we saw that in chapter 1. And in chapter 6, Paul describes those who are part of the false teaching like this. Chapter 6, verse 4, he says... He has a sick craving for controversial questions and disputes about words from uh, which come envy and strife and abusive language, literally word battles, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. So it sure sounds like there were some heated arguments going on in the church. And that's probably why Paul tells the men to gather together to pray Instead of being angry and arguing, I want the men to pray. I want them to lift up holy hands and focus on praying rather than coming together and getting into these debates and arguing about things and being angry and all of that. And that seems to be most likely what lies behind Paul's encouragement here to to pray and do so without anger and disputing. So in verse 1, Paul called the whole church, men and women, everybody to pray and to pray for all people, including those who are in charge, the rulers in town. Here in verse 8, Paul specifies the men in the church. I want you guys to get together and I want you to focus on praying and not be full of anger and arguing and disputing. Now, what happens in the second half of the chapter, which really is directly connected to what, what proceeds, is Paul gives instructions to the women. So he gives this instruction to the men in verse 8, verses 9 through 15, he'll give some instructions to the women. We will save that for the next recording. Thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a crowd-funded, listener-supported Bible teaching ministry that is only possible because of the generosity of people just like you. So if you're one of those who support this ministry, thanks a ton. May God bless you for it. If you have been impacted by this ministry and want to join the team of supporters, you can swing over to listenerscommentary.com, click the give button. It'll take you to a page where you can put in a dollar amount, click a little box that says, make this monthly if you want to make it a monthly donation. And you can set up a recurring donation that way. All those donations go through an organization called World Family Mission, which is a registered nonprofit and uh, provide some financial oversight to this ministry. And so thanks a ton for your support, and may God bless you for it.